Hey, Boulder Church. Hola y bienvenidos. Que Dios los bendiga hoy. Thank you for inviting me to worship with you today. I am so delighted to join you, and I'm really looking forward to a redo when COVID season is passed. There's several of you that I just want to give a, a big hug to. I haven't seen you in so long. And I, I haven't met some of you, but I'm looking forward to meeting you someday. So for my old friends, for my new friends, I pray there's part of the message today that resonates with you, that speaks to you, or that makes you see God in a new way. So while I've never considered myself a prominent voice in children's ministry, here we are together in this series, Faith Like a Child. And last week you heard from Sandy Hodgson about this childlike faith that celebrates change, that seeks humility and focuses on Jesus. Sandy encouraged all of us to consider how Jesus treated children. She challenged us to value um, children just as Jesus did. After all, children are the hope of our future. In fact, they're probably the hope of our present as well. We're living in an extraordinary time when some children have the capacity to make extraordinary impact with their ideas and with their actions. I mean, just look at the waves made, uh, made by Greta Thunberg or Malala Yousafzai, or whether you agree with their messages or not, it's impossible to ignore these tidal waves of change that have rippled out from the actions um, of, these, of these young women for climate, for education, for women and children, and for our future. Or consider Jack Andreka, who at 15 invented an advanced cancer test for pancreatic cancer using Google. Me, I can do like an advanced search for running shoes on Google, you know? So can I ask, do you remember what you were doing at 15? Or maybe, what do you hope to be doing at 15? Around 15, I was trying to make sense of geometry and probably would have done better if I'd had Google instead of ask Jeeves to help. Uh, if you don't know who Jeeves, in, Jeeves is, you, you can Google it. At 15, I was trying to navigate high school. I was working as kitchen staff. I was cleaning locker rooms to pay tuition. While I considered changing my job after cleaning the men's locker room each day, changing the world was nowhere on my mind. Henrietta Mears, a Christian educator and author and founder of the National Sunday School Association, basically the mother of Sunday school and Sabbath school, she said, um, youth do not think into the future far enough. And so we have to encourage them to dream of great tomorrows. But there are so many youth there are so many children dreaming of better tomorrows. They're dreaming of great tomorrows. And when we look at our text for this series, we realize the disciples were also dreaming of great tomorrows, um, but in a very different way. Scripture tells us that they were concerned with understanding a person's greatness in heaven and, and who might be considered the greatest. So they asked Jesus about it. Matthew 18.1 says, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus had often shared with his disciples about what they might see in the future and what it might look like. And it was always a warning that there would be sorrow or heartache or suffering. But they held ever so tightly to this glorious idea that Jesus would establish his kingdom here on this earth. 
And I love what Jesus does in his reply. He flips their argument. Jesus did a lot of this in his ministry on earth. That is, he challenged the way that people thought, and he challenged what they believed. And the disciples here were acting childish, and so Jesus called an actual child into their midst and said, be like this child. Which is to say, don't act childish, but be humble and have faith like this child. In verse 2, Jesus called uh, a child to him and put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. So have you ever had trouble welcoming a child? What if it's a child who's been separated from their parents? What if it's a child who's hungry or dirty or poorly cared for? You'd want to make sure they were safe and cared for, right? What if they were considered illegal? What if they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or maybe just the wrong color skin? Maybe they were placed in harm's way because of circumstances well beyond their years or control. Don't these same rules apply? Jesus said caring for a helpless child like this on Christ's behalf is welcoming Christ himself. And Jesus never specified which children should or should not be cared for, which ones were as if we were caring for him if we cared for them. Maybe caring for children just comes naturally to you. And just the other day, my friend's nephew was born, and, and my friend told me they, they just wanted to hold the new baby and cry, and we love when new babies are born. We cry and we hold them and we love them and, and protect them and, and care for them. All the while in awe of this tiny miracle that's in our arms. Babies are easy to welcome. And for most of us, it even appeals maybe to like the human nature inside of us to care for a child, to hold and love and protect them. But some of you know, um, some of you maybe with toddlers or teenagers or anything in between may know that sometimes it's not easy and sometimes we just don't do well at welcoming a child. Some time ago I was um, one of several pastors at a large church and I, I didn't have a part in the church service that day so I wandered up the stairs into the media and broadcast room where our production and, and staff were working and they mixed the video feed there, they managed several screens, camera operations, made sure the live stream production was flawless. This is, this is a whole room full of equipment. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw two or three children unattended running around. So I walked over to them and I asked, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, exploring, and they were so cheerful. Now, something that you should know about me I, I appreciate rules. I like structure. And I, I've been known to push the boundaries a time or two, but I appreciate knowing where the baseline is when I do. Rules, the rules I was taught growing up were things like walk softly in the sanctuary and no running in church. As a pastor's kid, I took all of these rules to heart. So when I saw these children playing in the media room, in the church, the first thing that came to my mind and then out of my mouth before I could think or stop the words was, kids, 
we don't run or play in church. Where are your parents? And these cheerful children became dejected in an instant. Their faces fell, their mood grew somber, and they turned and walked away. In those days, the days of Jesus and Matthew, when people spoke of children, they used it literally. And they also regularly used the term in another way. A teacher's disciples were called his sons or his children. So a child could also mean someone who was a beginner in faith or someone who had just begun to believe, someone who was not yet mature or established in faith, and someone who had just begun on the right way and who could easily be, ter- be deterred from the right way. And it's important to understand that the word child is used both ways here in this text as well. If, we were simply, if it were simply a child that Jesus was talking about, we could probably hear the lesson in having this childlike humility, this childlike faith, trust, and dependence. And likely we could learn our lesson we already have about being humble. And then we could walk away and feel pretty good about ourselves because we know how to self-rate our humility. We can gauge our level of trust and we can remember to have faith even if it's the size of a mustard seed. But if we stop here, like we so often do, we might miss out on a bigger lesson. We don't usually like to move on to this next part of what Jesus says. It's not as soft or it's not as welcoming. It's less comfortable. And while it is also familiar, and we've, we've probably all convinced ourselves that it doesn't actually apply to us personally, maybe to someone else. Verse 6 continues, But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It's uncomfortable. But we can rest assured that we aren't leading children into temptation, right? That's really strong language reserved for abusers or for people online or people with secret sins or secret lives or people in Hollywood or or the media, but surely not for us. And these are some pretty strong words and pretty dramatic measures. So maybe it doesn't even feel relevant to us today. If that's hard to hear or relate to, maybe I could just paraphrase it. But anyone who mistreats those who are harmless or innocent would be better off to have a large stone tied around their neck and be thrown into the ocean. I feel badly that such differences have to exist in this world, but, um, and I particularly feel sorry for the person who contributes to such wickedness. So here's another view. There's a term used, um, especially within the military, um, but it also applies outside in civilian life. And it's a term that addresses the deep hurt and the trauma and injury that someone might experience when they damage or mistreat those who are harmless or innocent. And the term used to describe this is called moral injury. And it's grown out of veteran spiritual care Um, and chaplaincy in the last few years. 
It attempts to offer this soul-level language to repair wounded souls and negotiate re-entry into civilian culture. There's an author, Larry Kent Graham, who writes about this in his book, Moral Injury, Restoring Wounded Souls. Most often, he writes, moral injury is seen in the small nicks, cuts, and bruises arising from the micro-moral exchanges within ourselves and between others. Unkind thoughts, misunderstandings, a failure to listen, gossip and stinginess, to name a few. We injure ourselves by the thousand minor cuts inflicted on ourselves and on others, arising from knowing better, but not doing better. I know I've been asking a lot of questions of you today. So here's another. Have you ever gotten in the way of someone else's faith journey? Maybe you haven't actually tempted someone else to sin, but you haven't, um, but you also haven't helped. Um, have you, maybe you've blocked their way or become a stumbling block. Maybe you've hurt others or yourself when you knew better, but you didn't do better. Do you have any rules or any ways of doing things um, that are the right way? And then when someone new or new in faith or new in Christ does it differently, you're quick to point it out. I saw this play out one day. As I was preaching, I noticed there was a young couple in church that day. I'd never seen them before. And they came in alone, and they sat alone, and they didn't seem to know anyone. I'm always thrilled when new people come to church. So after the service, I was really excited to go and to meet them, you know, get to know them and make them feel welcome. So I went and I sat down in the pew next to them. I introduced myself. Someone had already met them and given them a package of cookies. Um, And so they offered a cookie to me. Now, I love cookies. And it's a rare day that I will turn cookies down. And this was no exception. And so we all ate these cookies together, just getting to know each other, talking, um, really enjoying the conversation. And just then, one of the deacons came up to us. And I was really excited to introduce this new couple to another church member and make more connections and and facilitate friendships. But instead of a warm greeting or even a welcome, really, the deacon turned to the couple and without asking who they were, without introduction, without any warmth, said, we do not eat in the sanctuary. Now, several things went through my mind at that moment. One was hey, you don't know these people. Um, And the other thing, technically, yes, we do eat in the sanctuary. We call it communion service. But the new couple put their their cookies away and satisfied that they were following the rules, the deacon turned and walked away. So let me ask you again, have you ever gotten in the way of someone else's faith journey? Just because we have it right, and we might be doing faith correctly, that doesn't mean where we are at in our faith journey applies to all people at the same time and in the same way. Jesus says that's perfectly true. This world is full of temptations. That is inevitable in a world where sin is entered. But that doesn't make the responsibility any less for the person who's causing a stumbling block to be placed in the way of a younger person or of a beginner in faith. There's nothing in this world more terrible than to destroy someone's innocence. And if a person has any conscience left, there's nothing which will haunt them more. William Barclay, 
a theological scholar and Bible commentator, tells of an old man who was dying on his deathbed. Um, The man was obviously very troubled. And, And finally, those gathered around him got him to tell them why. He said, when we boys were at play, one day at a crossroads, we reversed a signpost. So the arms were pointing in, in the opposite way. And I've never ceased to wonder just how many people were sent in the wrong direction by what we did. For us, the great value of a child is always about the possibilities locked up inside them. And everyone, um, everything depends on how he or she is taught and trained. Some possibilities may never be realized. They might be stifled or stunted. Things that could be used for good might be deflected to, to evil or maybe unleashed in a way that a new tide of power floods the earth. It's easy to pay attention to the person who, in the worldly sense of the term, has made a success of life. So in all of these verses, it's as if Jesus is saying that the most important people are not the ones who push or shove. It's not the ones who climb to the top by pushing everyone else out of their way. But it's the quiet, it's the humble, it's the simple people. Those are the ones that have the heart of a child. Those that welcome that child or give that child care and the love and the teaching which the child needs to become a good person, those are the people. To help a child to live well and to know God better is to help Jesus. William Barclay writes again in his commentary on the book of Matthew. Back in the 11th century, Duke Robert of Normandy was one of the great warriors and a a knight-like figure. He was about to go off on campaign, and he had a baby son who would be his heir, and before he departed, he made all of his barons and noblemen come and swear their loyalty to this infant, just in case anything happened to himself while he was out. And so they came, waving their plumes and clanking armor, and they knelt before the child. And one great baron smiled, and Duke Duke Robert asked him, why are you smiling? And he said, the child is so little. (laughs) Yes, said the duke. He's little, but he'll grow. And indeed, he did grow, and that baby became William the Conqueror of England. We know in every child that there is this infinite possibility for good or for bad, and it's the supreme responsibility of our parents of our teachers, of the Christian church, to see his or her dynamic possibilities for good are realized. Because to stifle them, to leave them untapped, to twist them into evil powers, that is sin. Henrietta Mears, again, writes, what your young people learn today determine what the church will know tomorrow. So I ask you another question. What are our children learning today? Where are our children within Bloom's taxonomy? Are they simply remembering everything they're told, like walk softly in the sanctuary? Are our children learning or understanding? Are they internalizing? Are they able to apply what they learn? Better, are our children allowed the space to analyze and evaluate and question what they're taught? Are they allowed space to accept or reject these teachings as they discern what's worth holding on to and what they have to let go of in order to improve? 
finally, have we given our children the freedom to create? What are we doing to allow them to create a church that is relevant for them? A church that will be relevant for them today, a church that will be relevant for them tomorrow and long after we're gone. What are we doing to encourage and support and grow them along their way? What are we doing so that we don't become a stumbling block for those who are young and for those who are young in faith? Years ago, when I saw those unattended children running around in the media room at church, and I walked over to them and asked what they were doing, my interpretation of the rules made their faces fall and their moods grow somber. They turned and walked away. Now, my actions, my negative reaction, really, could have sent them down another path. It could have sent them away. It could have been a stumbling block, and it very easily could have ended right there. But thankfully, the producer was paying attention. And without chastising me, which I very well earned, he called the kids over to where he was working. And he asked, so you guys were exploring, huh? Well, do you want to learn about what we do up here? And the look of joy came back to their face, each one of them so excited to learn about how to make church work and how to make it relevant and fun and exciting. I had missed the mark by a lot. But someone else was there to connect the curiosity of these children with this tangible, positive learning experience. I've learned a lot since those days. Haven't stopped learning, and I hope you don't either. One thing that I know is that our actions matter. They impact those around us, whether they're young in faith or young children growing up and finding their place in a very confusing world. Those of us with a longer journey, those of us with more mature faith have a greater responsibility to ensure that they can find their place and that they can belong and that they can create this space to fit them. There's a, a woman named Tracy Jaco. She works at a church in Indiana and she shared, shared this message after reflecting on um, a sermon given in the evening program. She said, tonight during the message, my nine-year-old son, Jay, came to the realization that the children who were not on the ark didn't make it. And he looked at me with such a sad and questioning face. All I could say was, their parents didn't make sure that they were on the ark. And the weight of that statement is still weighing on me. Of all the things that I do for the kingdom of God, nothing, nothing is more important than making sure that my children find their way to a relationship with Jesus. So, one final question. How will you help our children 